You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK Services. Gosh, I almost forgot your, your company's name there, David. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. I trust our listeners are enjoying the podcast and uh, making the best of Australian electricity. And it's a, special, a welcome to our very special guest this week. Yes, well, look, we'd like to um, introduce uh, Eric Gimon. He's the uh, Senior Fellow at the Energy Innovation um, Hub in San Francisco. Um, Eric, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Giles and David. It's a pleasure. Well, look, it's great to have you on board because um, you're a person who has looked at energy markets in great detail um, overseas, particularly in the home country, uh, the United States, but um, also elsewhere. And you've been spending the last year in Australia, fascinated, I'm sure, by both the politics and the policy that um, we are um, having or trying to have in Australia. But um, your particular focus is, um, or one of your particular focuses, is design of energy markets and particularly in the energy transition. And this is quite timely because Australia has decided, or Australia's leading institutions have decided that we need to completely rewrite the rules to c- cater for a market which is going forward into the future. At least I hope that's what they're trying to do. Tell us about how to design a market for 100% renewable energy, because it's going to be kind of different to what we've got now, isn't it? Yes, that's for sure, but not maybe as different as people think. You know, when you first talk to people about renewable energy, they, they go on a journey. I mean, mostly people don't think about where electrons come from that come out of the plug. And then they have the idea that it would be nicer for these electrons to be clean rather than than dirty. And then somebody comes along and tells them with the glee of telling a kid that maybe Santa Claus doesn't exist, that that power is that clean power is not always going to be available because the sign the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. I've heard that phrase a million times. And and people feel like this is a big epiphany like like uh, the uh, <clears throat> revelation to Paul. And it takes a certain amount of work to get them to the next step to understand, well, in fact, a lot of people have thought about that issue. And when you think about the market and the, kind of, and, and the grid in a kind of holistic, organized way, it's a lot less challenging than you think to integrate variable renewables. Well, with market design, there's a similar evolution where people understand that markets work relatively well today in the US and Europe and here in Australia. But... Um, when they start thinking about the fact that these markets are based on what's called short-term marginal cost, which is usually fuel, fuel cost is what sets how people bid into markets, they suddenly have a moment of panic when they think about, well, what happens when a lot of the resources that we want to have in there are zero fuel cost, have zero marginal cost? Um, and then there's an immediate kind of reaction, the kind of Santa Claus doesn't exist reaction, that the markets will fail to work. Well, in fact, you know, markets are a very robust construct that are, that are in operation in more than just electricity, and there's actually a, a um, plenty of reasons to be optimistic. Um, one one thing that changes, though, is 
instead of having fuel costs being the thing that determines prices a lot of the times, what determines prices is what's called opportunity cost. So opportunity cost is the idea that if I have a storage device, for example, and I know David just had a piece on storage uh, today on your website, um, if I have a storage device, I have to decide when to discharge it. Right? And uh, come, come the afternoon peak, that's the optimum time to discharge it. So I don't discharge it beforehand. So if I'm bidding my device in the market, I, set a, I don't set a zero price for the electricity that I have in my storage device. I, I set a higher price. I'll say, well, I'll, I'll give it to you now if you really want it, but only if you pay me this much because I know I'm going to get more later. So this dynamic of having opportunity cost is very important in settling a market. Now, if you so, so start, Eric, Eric yes. could, could I could sorry? Uh, uh, so I, I guess you know, does that mean we need a capacity market as well as an energy market? That's like that's I guess where the debate is at the moment in Australia. And you know, I, I see two different sorts of capacity market. Well, I see the problem with the energy market has been that. Uh, it, it, consumers can't express a reliability preference. So, in fact, the, the market will eventually doesn't really care if we're energy market, if we have a blackout, uh, that's bad luck. I mean, it will, it will build new supply in response to that, but it doesn't care about the fact that the blackout occurs. And so the argument is that you need a capacity market uh, that, uh, and that the capacity has to be introduced ahead of the old capacity, firming capacity, leaving the market. Uh, am, am I on the right track here? Well, that's an interesting point you bring up, David. Actually, I, I'm part of a school of thought who thinks that the capacity market construct is a very bad idea. It was an okay idea for when it was developed with the kind of traditional fuel mix that we saw in the U.S. But as we move into renewable markets, it's going to become a very um, uh, unworkable concept to operate in the markets. Now, you do have to worry about resource adequacy. Am I going to have enough stuff when I need it? In the Texas uh, market, which is the closest to Australia, they've introduced something called an ORDC, which is kind of a, a cost adder that kicks in when the system is needing extra resources and gives basically extra incentive to build capacity that's going to be available during periods of maximum stress. I agree that consumer preference is a very important part of the story. I mean, it's going to be a, a combination of energy storage and consumer preference that will drive the type of um, equilibrium that we need. And in Australia, the consumer preference element is going to be even more important because you have competition issues. I guess the question then comes down to, um, do you think then that this, this market um, um, as, as, as designed can then actually deliver the 100% renewables that they can deliver the um, the amount of storage that you require to um, support 100% renewables or as or as near as damn it, and that can then have them dispatched at the um, at the at the correct times. Well, the market design is only one element of the puzzle, Giles, um, and uh, there are other elements of the puzzle. One, one way I like to think about it that uh, somebody mentioned at a conference I was at here in Sydney recently is that you have to think about three types of economic thinking. You have the microeconomic thinking that dominates the way you think about markets and how people behave in markets. You have behavioral economics that dominates how consumers interact with their retailers and what types of products they'll adopt. And also you have infrastructure thinking. I've heard David talk many times about the need to have kind of a holistic planning lens around transmission, for example. That would be an example of infrastructure thinking. 
Now, just because you have the right market in place doesn't mean you know, you'll have the right infrastructure in place. So there are always, there are always elements or complementary elements that you need to have. Uh, then other ideas for complementary things, uh, one thing I've proposed in the work I've done with my colleagues is to have long-term energy markets where um, people would purchase a lot of their energy ahead of time. There are a lot of reasons why that stabilizes the, the real-time markets and kind of helps create the right types of incentives. So in California, for instance, uh, we see that uh, there is the, the, the CPAC does the California Public Utilities Commission plans out a low, lowest cost uh, uh, way of supplying the market for a given carbon emissions target. I, I, my question is generally around what there are so many different ways you can have a market like a reverse auction allows a lot of central planning, but still allows competitors competition amongst suppliers. So you get the market for supply of something that's been predefined. So the market is, uh, it's a different kind to having an open market for how much is required. Um, that part is centrally planned. Uh, you, you got any thoughts about that part of the debate? Well, I wouldn't describe California as a centrally planned uh, market. It has an operating uh, ISO type structure. And there are some uh, oversight on the procurement process of the utilities. So there's a lot of entities that, that don't have that kind of oversight. Um, and then there is a cost-based um, cost-based mechanism for dealing with the reliability issue. Uh, they have something called resource adequacy credits that various loads uh, serving entities have to buy. But that's becoming a um, unworkable machine as well. The, the California independent system operator kind of branched this out to local RA so that they would, we need to have capacity in load pockets and also something called flexible RA, which was the idea that we needed capacity for dealing with the, the infamous California duck curve, the ramping. And now that flexible RA is um, show, you know, groaning at the, at the seams as it were, and they want to differentiate into three more products. So you can see this is kind of proliferation of products, uh, which is a good strong indicator that this capacity-driven approach to mandating reliability is not going to work very well in the future. So if we come back to the practical problem in Australia, sorry, Giles, of, of how to get, uh, to how to replace our coal-fired coal electricity. I mean, we could just procure endless variable renewable energy, which will eventually force uh, or soon quickly force the coal generators out of business because they will have a, a missing money problem. Uh, but in how, how should the, we design things to, to make sure that we can maintain uh, 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 reliability, enough dispatchable power, and it still phase out uh, the coal-fired coal power, which is, in my mind means one way or another we've got to build new capacity ahead of when there's a market signal for it. Yeah. Well, you need to have strong forward, sig forward uh, signals, and the forecast that ITK and so on provide is an important part of that process. Some amount of Thank you. planning would be, uh, would be good, I think. I've, I've heard people in your country talk about how some of these uh, brown coal plants in Victoria are going to get run into the ground and then suddenly fail. Uh, and that's not a great way to operate the system. Um, so how would you go about doing that? Um, well, voluntary long-term markets, would, uh, voluntary organized central markets would be a good way to give a transparent and clean signal to, to all the participants. Um, you want them to be voluntary because you don't want to be the 
dependent on some bureaucrat figuring out what the forward forecast is. Uh, you want people to be still taking on market risk and to have the ability to procure power both in the long-term market and the short-term market so that they work hand in hand. The other thing I would say is, you know, I, I heard Angus Taylor talk about the need for capacity and peaking capacity and so on. But when you look at your actual market, what you see is that the cap options aren't that expensive right now. Uh, and at the same time, your average cost of electricity is pretty high. So what that seems to me is a situation where you're low on energy providers and not necessarily that low on capacity or flexibility providers, at least in the near term. No, but that's the problem, right? That's exactly what I said. There's no price signal for new capacity, but but we can all see that coal-fired generators are going to go out of business. That That's the exact issue. Yeah. So, but I guess this, it's a question of sequencing. But look, look at what happened in Texas, right? We've, we've had this step down of... Um, coal generators in Texas, where we've had, you know, multiple, you know, tens of gigawatts of coal disappearing in the space of three or four months, uh, on, at least once or twice in the last few years. And so we've gone from planning reserve margins of uh, 17, 18%, that's the amount of, you know, stuff over peak, down to seven or 8%. And everybody thought that was, that was going to be a cataclysm. And uh, now we've gone through two summers with these low, pro you know, reserve margins and, and done just fine. Um, partially because the price incentive is bringing in some of the faster, more flexible things quicker, and also because um, people who run some of these old peakers are doing a better job of making sure that they're available when they're needed. Um, I think that the long-term solution is really to get more demand-side flexibility. So to have companies like Amber here that really expose people to the short-term marginal cost really helps you dig into the demand side of the equation. And that's basically an endless resource. Uh, after all, demand is what creates the need for generation. So you're never going to have not enough demand that could potentially respond. Interesting stuff. Look, um, I'm just wondering if we can maybe um, think about another part of the market, um, which you've um, got some interesting things to say about, which is uh, nodal pricing. And um, look, this is a, a huge debate, one of the biggest um, one of the biggest issues for new uh, or sort of developers of new solar and even just recent solar and wind farms is grid congestion. And that is either causing curtailment and delays in the commissioning process. And that's probably due to a number of different reasons. But um, grid congestion has also sort of um, appeared in the form of what's called marginal loss factors. So the output that is credited for a wind or solar farm has been down, dialed down considerably in some cases. And there's been very sort of um, thinking about what should replace the marginal loss factors or if they should be replaced at all. Um, and then this sort of also runs into this whole design of the uh, of the grid. And I think this week, actually, we're going to hear from the Australian Energy Market Commission on what their final decision is. But um, there's been a bit of a push for average, what's called sort of average pricing and um, what have you. But um, you are a defender of the no, a defender of the economists and the lawyers, as we sometimes call them at the AMC and the and the and the nodal pricing. Can you explain why that's the case? Well, thanks, Charles. Well, you know, it's interesting moving to a different country because uh, you know the tribes are aligned slightly differently, and it gives you a chance to uh, kind of stress test your own thinking. And it, here, I, I found the reaction to the AMC's proposals a little puzzling. Um, I, the problem with the economists is nobody 
people often don't want to listen to them. They're, they're kind of like the lifeguard telling you that there's a rip current and stop swimming for shore. You need to go sideways. And then the response is, I'm trying to get to shore. What are you talking about? And I think that's a similar situation here. Obviously, people are frustrated with these MLFs that are changing on them and really changing the underlying economics of their projects, and that's unworkable for financing. But the long-term interest for everybody is to have a better granular value um, signal in the market, and then for the developers to turn to a third party to hedge that exposure. Then you have people that are experts in thinking about these types of congestion problems. And in the U.S., we have all kinds of consultants that, that, that do this day in and day out. Now, you think that would be kind of cumbersome, but in fact, it becomes much more efficient. And uh, Frank Wallach at Stanford has shown that in California, by moving to a nodal market, there were 1% or 2% savings um, for, for the consumers at the end of the day. But moving into a high renewables future, it, this becomes even more important because the underlying value signal is much more volatile and much more granular in the sense that it's very different in one part of the grid to another. And so, for example, we're finding in California that short-duration batteries, that is, batteries that, that can run for half an hour or an hour, are finding paybacks of two to two and a half years um, by exploiting the fact that there are price spikes. We have two real-time markets, 15 and five minutes. They both of those have price spikes, and uh, these can be very locationally spe specific. So that information about where these spikes happen tells you where you should place the battery, for example. So if you if you try to smooth that out with the ANLF or something like that, you're losing a lot of these signals that the markets can provide for you. Now the issue of being able to finance projects is important, but in, in a real market, the way you deal with that is through hedging or other types of products that transfer the risk to another party so that you can concentrate on what you're good at, which is developing a project. Does that, does that sound right? It sounds right. Yeah, David, have you got any thoughts on that? Well, I've been thinking about this, and I'm not sure I have the answer. I, I, I do think that uh, myself, uh, uh, as Eric says, that the wind and solar developers are, are not at all suited to developing transmission. The timeframes are different. And I think there are a number of problems. The first one at the moment is that if we forget about distributed, like putting batteries right next to load, just that is a very important topic. But let's just park it for a second and, and look at the traditional grid. Then what, what I see is that it takes such a long time to develop transmission that, and the risk profile of it is just so completely different to that. So the, the problem at the moment is we don't have enough transmission. It's not uh, that we're looking for a locational signal about where to build the wind or ne next wind or solar farm. The problem is that we don't have enough transmission. And to my mind, putting the locational pricing in right now is just a lot of work and confusion that uh, distracts us from the main, uh, main problem. And then secondly, all the studies I've been looking at uh, ever since we started looking at high renewable penetration in Australia, suggests that it's a great idea to have uh, a very big transmission line that goes from North Queensland down to the low set load centres so that we can take advantage of the wind in Queensland, which runs uh, um, uh, uh, at negative correlation to the wind everywhere else, and also all the winter sun that they get in Queensland that we don't get down south. Similarly, all those studies also show that there's terrific value in building a transmission link from uh, Tasmania to the mainland take advantage of all the hydro resource there. 
Now, those studies don't always incorporate batteries located right next to the load, which, but as I said, let's put that aside. And I just don't see how uh, a locational pricing decision is ever going to take that big system-wide lowest cost view into account when, when wind and solar farms have to decide where to build their next project. Maybe, well, maybe we should I, catch I, up with the transmission and then to the locational pricing. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> oh, well, I, you know, the, David put the, the, his finger on a very important point. I'm just saying that, that marginal loss factors or nodal pricing is really a separate issue to the, the kind of infrastructure thinking that goes into transmission planning. And, and the two are not incompatible. We have a big DC line in California that goes from the Oregon-California border all the way down to Los Angeles. Uh, and it's been there since 1960. So, and, and that's perfectly compatible with the nodal system that we have in California and in the 2% improvement in operations. So it's not that the AMC type solution, uh, you know, proposal is going to solve the problem of building transmission. And I think people have pretty much given up on the idea of financial transmission rights being the thing that will fund most of the transmission you need. You still need that kind of top level planning and renewable energy zones um, to, to get it done. They have to work hand in hand, but you have to make sure you know what problem you're trying to solve. Mm. Well, it's going to be interesting, actually, because the New South Wales government sometime very soon is going to start set up some sort of, um, we'll start testing the waters for um, what they're describing as an auction of um, space on in their new renewable energy zone. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that sort of emerges and how the different sort of developers um, react to that and um, how they how they might um, how they might price that and to what extent that actually then actually sort of um, enables that project to go ahead. Eric, just as Charles, finish Charles, off. Charles, Charles, we might find out eventually what happened to that billion dollars that was promised by the federal government to New South Wales government. I mean, where's it gone? That money just seems to have disappeared. Actually, yes. I'm, in, in, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. Look, Michael West, um, the um, the investigative journalist who used to work for the Sydney Morning Herald, um, he, on his website this week, he's actually um, published a piece saying, well, it has disappeared and the grid, that $1 billion fund, hasn't materialised. Um, so I don't know whether we're going to find this out in this sort of new technology roadmap which they're going to come up with at the... Um, well, we're told possibly as soon as the end of the week. I'm not really too sure, but um, everything just seems to be up in the air at the moment. Eric, I might just sort of park our question for you just for the end now and um, just sort of go into some sort of the day-to-day -day politics stuff. Um, David, it's been you wrote a fantastic piece today um just about you know just this sort of this this you know this the, the national party push for coal we had um we had the new resources minister keith pitt talking about you know let's have a coal-fired generator with carbon capture storage which just seems to be really just pie in the sky um this conversation about policy in australia just seems to be getting worse and worse if that was at all possible well you know, hope springs eternal, and what uh, we all point to the fact that, in fact, the renewable share, the variable renewable share, has has increased. And my article today was just designed to show that uh, we haven't turned coal around yet, uh, but uh, you can see in Southeast Asia clear signs that the rapid growth in coal generation that we've seen in the past 20 years is, is clearly slowing. And then every country, either the economics or the policy, is pushing back against coal. Uh, but you're right. The other point of the article is simply this just total divorce uh, by the National Party, which now includes the, the, the energy minister uh, for Australia, 
just totally divorced from everything that every electricity company of any significance and every every uh, academic of any significance is actually saying. It is just uh, <laughs> there's nothing else you can say except to keep we'll, we'll keep doing cartoons uh, uh, because that, I'm reduced <laughs> to a level of satire. And if you haven't caught up with David, if you haven't caught up with David article, David's article, there is um, there is a great little cartoon that goes with this, and we've got cartoons back on Renew Economy. Um, it was interesting. We've heard from all the major energy providers, um, AGL and Origin and Energy Australia, and some of the smaller ones like Infigen Energy. They're all of one voice. This Unki scheme and this sort of constant intervention by the government and Taylor's pet scheme, which he's trying to roll out as slowly as he possibly can, is basically um, stopping investment. I mean, Unki was sort of justified in the fact that there wasn't enough investment in dispatchable energy and all these other people are sort of saying, well, we can't make any investments in dispatchable energy while you've got all these potentially subsidised projects um, lining up behind us. So, Giles, you know, if you look at the share markets, the things, again, I'll point to is that the coal generators, the IPPs in China, have, have absolutely disastrous. They would be broke now in restructuring in America with debt-to-EBITDA ratios of, of over seven. You can clearly see next year are focused on wind way outperforming most other utilities. Even in Australia, if you look through the results, and it's a bit unfair just looking at one year in the share market, and everyone knows that the share market's only a temporary indicator, but let's face it, um, Infigen way outperformed AGL and Origin this year uh, by focusing on wind and firm wind. Um, so, yes, I don't have necessarily... I have a different view slightly to Eric about the amount of planning and using reverse auctions to to promote to to speed up a carbon transition. I don't think the market will do it fast enough for us. Quite frankly, I think it underestimate. You know, if we had a carbon price, it might be different, and that would also send an economy wide signal. And you know, one of the things we must talk on this podcast about soon is the use of hydrogen in steel, not hydrogen for electricity, but the use of hydrogen for steel, which is only going to be twenty or thirty percent more expensive than using metallurgical coal. And steel is seven uh, percent of global emissions. So th there are a lot of things that can be done. Is the short answer, but it would help if we had a more constructive approach to it. Mm. Eric, I'm not too sure if you want to respond to what David just said then, and um, but um, if, if so, or even if not, um, I'd just like to ask you, I mean, as a visit to Australia, someone who's looked at policy in California and Texas and obviously federally in the US, and you sort of spend a year in Australia, what do you make of the politics surrounding um, energy and climate in, in this country? Well, um, I've been told that uh, coal is the equivalent of guns in the US. Um, and that it's a, it's, it's not so much a rational debate, but a very uh, identity-based uh, kind of debate. I, all I can say as an objective observer is that if my, if my intention was to do what I could to preserve the economic welfare of coal miners above everything else, I would do exactly what the federal government is doing, which is so uh, confusion in the policy process, so nothing happens. Um, to, to David's point, I would say... Market design is not a substitute for carbon policy. Uh, they, they need to work together. And, and when we think about market design, we're anticipating an environment where, where there's serious carbon policy driving the transition that we want. The question is, if that policy is there, does the market still work? Um, so that's a slightly different question of how can I use the market to get what I want? And I worry sometimes that advocates see the low, low prices of wind and solar and so on and think, okay, the fight is won. Eventually, all these guys have to go. You know, the truth is you always need some kind of carbon signal 
to keep the dirty stuff out because otherwise it'll be there when you know supplies are short and you won't get the cleaner batteries and other things that could do the same job. And Eric, I might ask, you know, in Europe, of course, as they develop these things like uh, hydrogen-based steel production, and they have a carbon price, there's talk about using tariffs, something uh, many Americans would have been reading up on in the last year or two, uh, to effectively a tax to keep uh, high carbon products out of Europe. Do you hear any murmurings on the circuit about how successful, or what do you think about that? Well, you know, I heard a similar proposal in the U.S. maybe 10, 12 years ago where somebody pointed out that most of the states that had voted for the cap-and-trade in the U.S. had most of the, the buying power and that maybe we should be focusing on the buyer side control, uh, that if buyers determined uh, how much carbon content they were, then we would have the votes that we needed. Uh, it's, it's kind of an, it's an interesting approach, but it's a, really a turnabout from from what we've done otherwise and kind of introduces some tricky negotiations. I mean, you could see how hard Germany's having, a time Germany's having dealing with China on the issue of the Huawei 5G network stuff. You know, you don't always have the leverage you need to push back on, on the giants like China. So I, I, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I'm, I guess, uh, neutral on how effective I think it'll be. But the Europe is a different lesson when it comes to the nodal market. There, they are having problems. They have weird flows between Germany, Italy, and, and and France, but mostly they're dealing with it by overbuilding transmission. But that is not something that's an easy solution in North America or Australia. Hmm. And Charles, I thought it was also just quickly drawing attention to the other graph I put in my I I, I, I pinched frankly from the Australian Financial Review from uh, Adrian London Wignall's. Uh, uh, who's a very uh, uh, terrific economist, pointing out from his work with Munich Re, the world's biggest uh, uh, catastrophe reinsurer, that, uh, in fact, Australia is only 1.3% of global emissions, but it's uh, 6% of the kind of insurable or government interventions uh, for natural catastrophes happen in Australia. So, essentially, Australia is a very leveraged country on the cost side of things to whatever happens to global warming. And, and that's a point, you know, we, we get all this coal revenue, but we, 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 we're going to more than pay for it. That's a really interesting point, actually. Yes, and I do recommend that people um, look at that um, that particular piece of um, that, that, that piece by David. Look, guys, um, I think it's probably a bit of a wrap here. Um, Eric, um, any sort of final observations before, before you go? Well, uh, yeah, one final thought for you guys that's kind of interesting. We have a new trend in the U.S. that's driven by U.S. tax policy. Uh, we have these, these tax credits for when you produce uh, wind and solar. And uh, storage that is built in place with these, these projects is able to take advantage of those credits and otherwise isn't. So we're starting to see a lot of hybrid systems, at least 80% of the systems now, uh, are, are being built with some amount of storage packaged with the wind or the solar. Um, but now that that trend has been activated by the tax policy, the people I know at Nextera and places like that are starting to get very excited about these hybrid systems, about the possibilities of uh, savings in the power engineering and, and the way these things can participate in the markets. And they, they see this as a game changer. And some of the modelers that we have in our network have been looking at, at you know, modeling the U.S. system with high fractions of wind and solar and are starting to find that the cheap um, battery storage especially is changing some of the qualitative features that you see in terms of least cost systems. So I'd be very curious to see how these 
hybrid systems spread around the world or places like Australia and, and how they change uh, the picture for you guys as the price of storage keeps dropping. Yeah, I think the ITCs, but the investment tax credit's been great in America, uh, frankly, and uh, particularly including batteries. And uh, I want to blame the Grattan Institute for being so anti, uh, like feed-in tariffs for solar that's made it so hard for batteries to get any subsidy or, you know, to get a head start in this market. But we'll get there. Hmm. Anyway, look, it's been a fantastic conversation. Really um, enjoyed you having with us, um, Eric. Um, so um, thank you very much and, and enjoy the rest of your stay in Australia. I, I don't know how much more time you've got, but I um, um, hope it's been a, uh, a fascinating experience and uh, it'll be interesting to see when you go back to the United States and um, see get your observations from afar. Well, thank you, uh, David, and thank you, Giles, and I look forward to uh, listening to your wonderful weekly show. Thanks very much, Eric. <laughs> thank you very much, that's our Eric G. Moore from the uh, Energy Innovation in uh, California. Um, David, thank you once again. Um, we should also thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and Evergen, for their ongoing support. Um, very important for keeping this show going. And um, David, um, Charles, we'll be back again Charles. next week. Yeah. One more thing. Well, we, will, we will be back next week, but I believe it's a very special week for you. Uh, we uh, next next uh, next weekend is that right? Oh, we've got it, yes, we've got we've got we've got another show before we get to that, so we might talk about that then. So um, yes, but um, yes, don't don't reveal too much right now about my personal life, but um, yes, all good. David, we'll talk again next week. Um, we'll reveal more then, and um, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.